Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. So welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. Uh, it's my great pleasure today to introduce our interviewee, Sylvia Rossi, who's a writing specialist at Mount Royal University. Thanks for coming today, Sylvia. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. I've been listening to the podcast for a while and um, yeah, just excited to, to have the chance to chat with you both. It's our pleasure. Uh, and we, we always appreciate having um, educators come from the institutions and we've had a variety, but we haven't had anyone come who is a, a writing specialist. So I think this is really helpful because we've had a lot of episodes about productivity, uh, organization. Um, kind of, you deal with a lot of the ancillary issues I think that I deal with as a librarian. So it's really interesting for me to hear. And I think it, it, it'll broaden the perspective of the listeners a lot. So I'm really looking forward to this. Um, as you, we, we've sent some questions ahead of time, but I think just to get started, if you wouldn't mind just telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. So that could be your background, uh, work experience, obviously you work at Mount Royal, but maybe how long you've been there, how that's changed, uh, you know, other interests and things like that. Sure. Yeah. I'm happy to start off that way. Um, you know, when I think of my work experience, educational background and personal interests, there is one thread that really links all of those areas uh, together. And that is a love of languages. I love learning languages. I love delving deeply into how they work. I love to listen to languages and speak them and, and I love to teach them. And so, you know, I did an undergrad in French literature, graduate work in French and Spanish, second language acquisition, a little bit of a foray into uh, some research into how trilinguals mix up their languages unintentionally and trying to tease out a few factors <laughs> that kind of uh, lead to that sort of code switching. And, um, and then I, I worked as an English language teacher and teacher educator uh, here in Canada and also in a number of exciting places abroad for a number of years, uh, so Brazil and Poland and Japan and Russia. And uh, yeah, I'm, I've been at my role for a long, long time, but for the last six years, I've been working in student learning services and, and extremely happily so because um, my role as a writing and learning strategist, just there are many beautiful things about it, but it is uh, it has so much variety involved in it. And so in a given day, it would be a mix of one-on-one -on -one consultations with students and group sessions, workshop style things, and working with faculty and collaborating on resource development of different kinds. And, uh, you know, just to kind of paint a picture, if um, I had a block of, let's say, you know, three student appointments in a row, I might have an appointment with a nursing student, first of all, to look at a journal article appraisal or something like that and really be picking apart a piece of writing and thinking about how to read this thing and how to deeply think about it. And then the next half hour might completely change gears to, uh, I don't know, a management student working on a presentation about corporate social responsibility uh, with IKEA or something like that. Um, and then maybe another appointment might be purely about time management with a student who you know, has a lot of things to juggle, young children and, and lots of courses and a job. And so you know, it really, really keeps me hopping and I think feeds uh, my love of, uh, of learning and of, of that variety. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm really, really happy in the work that I do. 
Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it's it's funny, Sylvia. Like that's how we originally met. I had you come into my um, first year class where, uh, and I've told you this as we recently connected again. But I I actually took away some of your slides just on time management and kind of um, instilling that within the students um, because I, I think a lot of uh, uh, when it comes to higher education is just a matter of uh, productivity and time management and allocating their time uh, accordingly. Um, anyways, uh, I, I guess as a writing specialist, uh, given that we're talking more about uh, educational technology, but uh, which technologies have been most transformative in your work and uh, which have maybe changed the workflow the most? Yeah, this is a, a big question, actually, and I was thinking about it on a few different levels. So if I think about the work that I do directly with students, you know, honestly, I think it's collaborative editing tools like Google Docs, frankly, because I'm thinking of um, some second year nursing students that we do group appointments with. So we have a one hour appointment where there's eight or nine students plus their clinical instructor plus the writing strategist. And we're looking at a really big piece of, of writing. So it's a big project report. And so the opportunity to, you know, look at that piece of writing beforehand and put in some comments that all of those students can see. And sometimes they're even, I can see that they're in the document the night before our meeting. And so they're watching the comments I'm putting in and then they have a bit of time to think about it or maybe reply to it. And then when we get together live, then we can do really, really interesting things. And so even during that session, having the chance to, you know, discuss something and then say, okay, so, you know, a couple of you get in there and start messing around with this section and let's change it. And I'll be watching as they're doing it in real time and everybody else is watching at the same time. I just think that that, that has really transformed um, the way that you can work with a group of students. But even working one-on-one -on -one with a student if we're both in that Google Doc, I mean, we might be doing something like in the earlier stages of planning an assignment when the student is a little bit stuck on how to get going, we might have a brainstorming session where the student is the one talking and initially I might be transcribing what they're saying and doing just a little bit of grouping of ideas and then stopping to show them what the process looks like so that you can be modeling it. Um, but then gradually the student can take over so that you're really working alongside the student and able to do that modeling but then increasingly kind of becoming more and more hands off and the student gets more and more hands on. And so I think that uh, there are other ways to do it, but I, I think that these sorts of tools are making it um, making it feel so, um, yeah, just this feeling of working alongside a student. That's an important part of what we do, I think, as learning strategists. And so, um, so that's been powerful. But then when I think about um, the way the technologies that have really impacted um, my work with my immediate team. So we have a team of six uh, learning strategists. And you know, over the past year, because we've been working remotely, Google Chat, I think, has has hugely transformed the way that we communicate with one another. And so uh, when we're all in the same physical space, then what will happen is inevitably, you know, couple of people are off doing workshops or, or whatever and there's a few people in the office that have an important hallway conversation and they start getting into something and recognize that you know oh yeah we have to catch everybody else up and then you know see how we're going to move forward with this new idea and then that's a bit of a clunky process right because you missed the initial conversation then you have to like rehab that conversation whereas with google chat then those conversations can be happening and if somebody is off doing something else in that moment they can catch up on it and see exactly how that conversation went and then and contribute to it, um, you know, as appropriate. So I've been thinking a lot about how we will manage this uh, when we go back into the office. Then will we continue to 
to like how much will we revert to the hallway conversations, which of course have their advantages too over the Google chat. But you know, how can we preserve this idea of um, you know uh, being involved in all the conversations and not feeling like you kind of you weren't there, so you're out of the loop, and then you feel like you can contribute less. So I could go on and on, but th those are a couple that came to mind with that question. You know, it's a really good point. And I kind of, if you don't mind, I'd like to follow up with that. So there, there was an article I was reading uh, recently, Sylvia, that was talking about Slack, which is similar uh, as a kind of a very, um, so, so email would be an, still would be a relatively asynchronous, well, faster than snail mail, but a faster asynchronous communication tool where instant is a synchronous communication tool. In fact, so the argument was, is that things like Slack and chat have a lot more in common with the phone. But it's an interesting, uh, I think it was a Bloomberg article. It was interesting that they said the phone had kind of fallen by the wayside in favor of asynchronous communication in the office, which would have been email. Yet phone uptake has actually gone up as messenger uptake has gone up. Um, so, and of course, if you think about video calls or everyone getting together on an audio call, you can send one immediately in Google chat, as you mentioned, um, that's very quick. That's like calling everybody on a conference call, except there's no ridiculous equipment where everyone has to stand around this multi-array mic. I mean, you know what it's like getting a conference call in the boardroom or something. It's kind of a ridiculous setup, but do you think that, um, the, there, there is a downside to maybe the faster, um, is it, does it change expectations of communication in the workplace? Do you think like remote, there's that physical distance. So chat being able to get a hold of someone is really good. But do you think a, in a face to face that may feel different somehow when we go back on campus or when universities go back? Absolutely. I think I have a couple of thoughts on that. One is that, you know, we've had conversations um, amongst ourselves, our immediate team over the past year of like, what are the kinds of conversations that are best suited to this chat? So this, you know, faster racing greatest thing. Um, and what are the things that actually do belong in an email? And I don't know that we've exactly got the answer to that, but these different modes of communication, because, because of their differences, um, then, then the key is really figuring out, well, what belongs where? And and so we kind of decided that, well, if, you know, what we want to avoid is that there's a conversation that happens in the chat and a decision is made. But then like, what if you kind of miss that? Or what if it's not appropriate that that decision was made when somebody else wasn't there? And so in that case, you know, maybe there's a point at which the chat needs to stop and you almost need to bump the conversation over into email. Uh, there's something, there's something more weighty about email and there's something I don't know if it's a permanence kind of thing I haven't quite worked it out but I, I do think that um, that thinking carefully about why are we communicating in the ways that we're communicating is hugely important and so when you think about going back into the office then um, you know when Oh, I know what I was going to say. That the other aspect of the the chat that's really interesting is that you can turn it off. Whereas when we go back into the office and the hallway chats, which have their beauty, um, that face to face communication, the ability to really see the facial expressions and the body language of someone, you can tell how an idea is being received in a whole different way. Um, there's a beauty to that, and I look forward to that tremendously. But what I don't look forward to is the idea that I might be trying to focus on something, and that person who has that question 
question that they'd really like to get answered right now is going to knock on my door if it's even closed. Um, and so there's going to be that continual interruption, which I can control much better now with, um, with these sort of technologies that we've deployed because of being remote. So I think it will be a tricky readjustment of trying, and we've already been starting to talk about, okay, like what sing signal will we have ready that is going to allow us to preserve that deep work concentration time? Um, you know, we, sh we shouldn't have to leave our office space in order to get that deep con concentration. So I think it's just a matter of agreeing on what is the signal. If it's a sign on the door or if the door is closed, it means it's really closed and like don't hover and don't knock. Um, we'll have to decide what's going to work within our work culture for that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, I mean, as you know, we've talked about deep work on this podcast on the science of concentration and there's some really strong evidence um, for leaving people alone to solve the problems and then come back with a fresh perspective, right? That's probably a good um, transition to the, our next question, which is uh, during COVID, uh, what has been, you know, the biggest technological challenge when working with students online? So uh, another way to look at that would be, you know, how has working collaboratively with colleagues remotely uh, kind of made you th rethink the kinds of tools or training university employees should receive as well. So there's a student component, like what are their struggles, but also are there kind of uh, faux pas or, you know, unmute or some of the errors that we also fall into as, as, uh, as employees who are trying to collaborate. And is there something we can do to step up the game? Do we need to do more formal training or do students need more training with this? Mm, this is a big question. I have, um, again, had lots of thoughts on this one, but. You know, honestly, for me, the biggest challenge when working with students online has been getting myself to let go of some prior notions of what participation and engagement actually look like and what they mean. And so, you know, I've had lots of ups and downs over the last, you know, 14 months in teaching online, especially the group sessions or different webinars where students may choose not to have their cameras on. And then there's this feeling of teaching at the void. I mean, we've been talking about this endlessly for months, right? Um, but for me, the important takeaway is maybe this online teaching experience and the way that we've had to do it suddenly has really made me think, I, I make and, and, and made assumptions in the pre-COVID days too about which students were engaged and which ones weren't. And I think that that's been unfair in some ways, you know, and I, I would like to see more educators, um, well, I don't know, maybe I can only speak for myself. I need to continue to work on letting go of this idea that if a student is silent, and they're not participating in this sort of classic way. So I'm not hearing their voice because they're not unmuting and I'm not seeing them participating actively in the chat by typing things. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're not actively engaged, that they're not uh, trying and that they're not thinking. And so how do we figure this out? I mean, the black screen and the no chat participation might mean somebody's sleeping but it might not. And then I think about, okay, well, in the face-to-face -face classroom, what is the equivalent of that? And I think that I make all kinds of assumptions about a student's body language that might be misinterpretations. And so when a student is slouching at the back and yawns visibly, I mean, I feel viscerally annoyed, right? But is that really fair? I mean, who knows what's going on in that student's life? Like maybe they pulled an all-nighter, I don't know. 
And so, you know, their, their engagement isn't always visible on the outside, right? And so can we let go of that a little bit? Um, so I don't know, that kind of sidesteps the question a little bit, but for me, that has been the biggest challenge is can I rethink interaction? Can I rethink my assumptions about participation? And I think I'm still working on that. So, you know, could there be some training around that? I mean, there's certainly been lots of conversations about it over the past year. I'm not entirely sure about training. Um, maybe there is training where we question our assumptions and that, that could be useful, I think. Do you think maybe with, uh, with our, so that the student question is a great point and I, I agree with you. Um, I probably don't look the most engaged in, in meetings that we have sometimes, even though I'm listening a lot. So I was actually told once when I was in my master's degree that I looked super disengaged because I was taking notes and I was drawing things. It looked like I wasn't paying attention, but then I was always asking questions every time there was a pause for questions. So that was kind of like unexpected. Uh, but I, so I could see how someone who has their head down doesn't look like they're paying attention. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because I mean, even you talk about the other good point that I found uh, as a takeaway, like you, you're talking about engagement. And um, I mean, I, I look at it in the face to face classroom environment. When I first started teaching in 2005, I mean, back then we didn't even have social media and there would be students, you know, on their keyboards or playing around with their mouse. And I, you know, God knows what they were doing. I think they were playing, playing around with their mouse. <laughs> yeah. So, for real that's amazing did people bring like desktops into class back then i'm just joking yeah well i mean they would <laughs> i don't know what they're it might be solitaire who knows right like i'm not exactly sure or minesweeper but um you know just because somebody's in the classroom like i'll, I'll give you an example i just found out a former student of mine i reconnected with uh, the student and uh during a guest speaker that we had uh, the student told me that the entire time was just going in uh, on facebook messenger and I, w I had the impression that they were taking notes the whole time, but <laughs> literally they were just chatting with their friends. So, I mean, uh, it, it's uh, it's interesting that you bring that up, like just in terms of our kind of biases or perception of uh, body language, right? Yeah, you know, one, one thing that I've been talking to students about quite a bit this year um, is how their choices uh, during synchronous sessions in particular how they might be perceived by their instructor and by their peers. And so while I think it's important for students to, um, you know, think about what do they need to actually learn well, and that's a very individual thing, um, and they should they should have the freedom to, to participate in whatever ways um, promote their learning the best. Having said that, students sometimes don't realize how those choices might be perceived. And so I, I think that that's an important piece to bring in. So for example, if you are most comfortable in a synchronous class with your camera off and not necessarily contributing to the chat, you absolutely should have the, the power to choose that. But then you, you become the unknown quantity. Right. And I think that then it, other students are probably more likely to reach out to the known quantity. And the instructor is probably going to have a more favorable opinion when marking assignments, um, despite their best efforts to stay completely objective um, of the known quantity and the student who, who is behaving in certain ways in the class. Right. So while on the one hand, I think we have to check our assumptions and really question, um, you know, what we're, what our beliefs are. I also think it's important to educate students on that side that, you know, like if you choose to to do this like here's how it might be interpreted and then at the end of the day the student has the information to make the, to make the best choice for themselves 
Yeah. No, and that, I mean, I'll give you an example. This semester so far, you know, it's spring semester and it's uh, quite accelerated. I mean, even at the, the pace that we go, like six weeks, I remember the first week alone, we covered like, I think it was six or seven chapters. Like it was, it was intense. And uh, so far, any synchronous sessions, I've actually even uh, increased the number just to make sure that the students are on track. But so far, I have not had even one student turn on their webcam. And so I'm literally chatting into the void, which I've gotten used to. I mean, I, I don't know. It's kind of uh, just a, a weird feeling overall as an instructor. But I mean, I don't want to go and um, uh, have any kind of preconceived notions or what have you. But I, I do think that there, you know, and we've chatted about this before. If you turn on your webcam as an instructor, like you're going to remember that person. It's just it's the equivalent of, uh, you know, you showing up to class and being at the front of the class and so on. Like, you, you know, and I think that uh, despite, as you say, like our best efforts to remain objective, like you will take that into account that this person was, you know, engaged or present or what have you, or even the fact that they don't even, you know, uh, engage, like whether it's uh, through the chat or even uh, through their microphone and ask questions like literally this semester, I, I would say that uh, I've had maybe three to four students out of 35 that have actually chatted and talked and asked questions. And they're the same students that actually attend the sessions and I, I haven't made a mandatory or anything either. So anyways, that's besides the point. Uh, maybe I, just the one thing that you mentioned earlier about the Google Docs and stuff, um, it, you know, there was a time that Microsoft Office was the standard for writing and productivity. Uh, and today, you know, we have a lot of different tools and options for students. Uh, do you think that this is an advantage or a disadvantage? Hmm. Both, <laughs> like everything, right? There are pros and cons. Um, on the one hand, of course, it's fantastic that there is so much choice nowadays and not just for students, but for everyone. We can all experiment, try different things out, decide which option, option works best for us um, as individuals and in terms of our style and also you know, for a given task. Um, but anytime we have a ton of choice, then we can be paralyzed by it too. I'm thinking of, um, of a book called The Paradox of Choice. I, I had to look up the author, but it was very short. And you know, that was a book whose ideas really resonated with me because, um, because sometimes there can be just too much choice. And so on the one hand, you kind of have decision fatigue, which is very real. And I think many of us have experienced that um, over, over the past year. Because every time you decide to experiment, then that testing and evaluation and decision-making time, like all of that takes time and takes energy. It's a real cost. Uh, but then also, if you decide not to experiment, if you decide not to go there, then sometimes there's that you know, psychological cost of that FOMO, right? You're, what if that tool could really change the way I work or the way that I learn? And so it's not, it's not simple. And, um, and I think sometimes I have, as recently as about two days ago, I was looking at um, some interesting collaborative uh, document annotation tools. Um, oh my gosh, I've forgotten their names now. But I had to actually stop because I just, in that moment, I knew that my brain could not handle it. And I thought, I'm just going to archive these and I'm going to look at them another time. And so you, you, I guess need to sometimes just be able to recognize that moment where the tools that I have for the work I'm doing today are good enough. And then you sort of, ad, ad, well, I guess 
be willing to feel that moment where you're curious to explore and try something new and then launch into that. But it, uh, it can be difficult when you have too many choices for sure. And, and of course, there's always that, that the point that we make assumptions about students and their ability to use new tools and to understand how tools work. And that's always dangerous. I think that we sometimes find something new and exciting and don't always recognize the time that we need to invest in order to help students understand how to use that tool if we're going to bring it into the class and asking them to use something specific. So, um, so there's always that, that weighing of, you know, there's this cool thing, but I have to make sure that I provide the scaffolding that students can learn to use it um, and that the benefits of this tool are going to make that time investment actually work out in the end and be worth it. I think you make a great point. Um, and one of the thing, I mean, you and I have, a, I'll reveal to our audience, you and I have talked a little bit about this in my investigation of looking at uh, student uh, technology skills and where the university can provide more support. And because of this podcast, I've now started thinking personally about shifting my research area from something like open education to the science of productivity and technical literacy, because uh, there is something to be said, uh, like, and you, I love the way you said it. It's like, here's a, yet another tool, but you know, I, I have too many on the go. There's something to be said for mastery of a tool. I, I used to do a poll. Uh, I used to joke with students. I said, okay, how many people here have a Mac? And of course, everybody had a MacBook Air. They'd raise their hands. And then I would say, how many people have opened the Grapher tool? How many people have ever opened Automator? How many people have ever opened and, and, and nobody? So the, the le this, this barely scratching the surface of what some of these tools can do. And you said Google Docs is a great advantage because of the collaboration. But it's funny that it's also not the industry standard. You would never go into an accountant's office and they're never going to be using Google Sheets. I think they would go, they would be run out of business because it would, uh, they just wouldn't have the power. So it's interesting. It's, it, we're kind of at this uh, precedence where we can, we would like to offer lots of options, but that comes with the trade off of, pressure to mass to master them is low. I don't know if you would agree with that, but that's at least the perception that I've come away from. A hundred percent. I think that um, I'm excited that you're thinking about moving more, you know, intentionally fully into kind of that direction. I think it's an important one to, to explore. Like I was thinking about Jamboard the other day, you know, uh, the Google whiteboard app and and uh, actually a video about all of, like a number of different ways that you can use Jamboard that was made by one of our colleagues here at Mount Royal in the Academic Development Center, Erica Smith. And I was fascinated by her video because I've been using Jamboard all year and I thought I was getting kind of innovative with it, but there was way more that you can do with the tools that like I knew they existed, but I hadn't really thought um, that deeply about all of the different ways in which I could use this one tool. I think that my default had become, oh, here's another tool over here. Let's bring this in. That would be interesting. And of course, I always think about, you know, is it going to be easy for students? Is it as easy as click on the link and then it will be super intuitive? Um, but rather than flipping to something new, like I really think that 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 uh, that contribution from my colleague made me think exactly about this point. Like, how could I really milk this one tool that students mostly already know um, for all it's worth? So yeah, hundred percent agree. Restraints uh, promote creativity is what I is what I tell people. There is some advantage to uh, constraints, but you know, this is actually related to, uh, this is actually a great segue to another thing I want to talk to you about, which is some of the technology around writing, 
because a good proportion of what you do is talking to students about writing and crafting. Yeah, you're really the expert at this. I, I'm a terrible mentor when it comes to writing. I can teach people how to find stuff and read sources, but I, it's it's kind of like I feel like a painter trying to tell someone how to paint. I've watched uh, your team walk students through those and it's masterful because I don't even know how to begin to tell them how to structure their writing. Some of us academics, we know how to do it, but we couldn't tell anybody (laughs) why it works. But there has been a lot of advancement around tools for grammar and for writing. Uh, You know, we've gone beyond Clippy uh, from Microsoft Office to things like Grammarly. uh, And I just wanted to know, uh, you know, from your perspective, um, are there technologies around writing in particular that you think are more important or are going to be more transformational in the future, just based on what you've seen so far and what you think may be coming? Hmm. This is the toughest question so far because I'm not sure that I'm, I'm gifted in thinking, uh, you know, thinking towards the future all that much. I mean, I can certainly say that uh, I found it very interesting to watch students, and this would be, you know, in those one-on-one consultations when you're watching a student write something. I think it's super interesting to watch their behavior because of, you know, the grammar checkers and the spelling checkers that are embedded in in their, you know, uh, word processing types of apps. And so, you know, students don't. I, I think it's super interesting how sometimes they don't even try to spell a word right. And they're very skilled in kind of approximating the spelling enough to be able to, to just get it close enough. Um, and there are all kinds of different behaviors that I've, that I've, that I've noticed. And my initial feelings of kind of horror that all oh, students will never be able to spell independently anymore. Who cares? What I think is actually more interesting is watching how they are, how they're adapting, well, I don't know if adapting is the right word, but how they're using these technologies. And it's way faster for some of those students to just, you know, do an approximation of a word and then poof, click and get the right and get the right spelling. It's way faster. Is it better? I don't know, but I think it's fascinating. But when I think about, uh, you know, what will be transformational, I mean, not just in writing, but in, I don't know, um, completing post-secondary coursework in general, like I I think about homework help sites like Chig and Course Hero, Mm -hmm. and I think that they are already transforming the way that students approach working. Um, And so they, it's, it's, it's a very tricky, tricky thing to talk about because there are legitimate sorts of activities that students can do through some of these homework help sites, but there is a real shady side. And the more deeply you look into that, the more horrifying it is to understand that there are, you know, there is blackmailing of students. There is, there are all kinds of hidden things. And um, where will that go? Like, how can we help students to understand uh, and take advantage of the, the power of collaboration and the power of using resources that are available while walking that really difficult line, um, which is, you know, staying in line with academic integrity. And so I, I think that that is uh, an area that I have been focusing on lately more and more and will continue to attempt to get more educated about and and to really start to create some things and to talk more and more to students about um, the nature of their collaboration, whether it's through a homework help site or it's collaboration with other peers or or whatever, because we know the power of 
of exchanging ideas and that social aspect to learning. And we don't want to make students shy away from there, but you know, where, where is that line? And if only it were a clear one to define. So, and that might've been a little bit of a deviation from the question, but I, it is just something, it's a, it's a technology yeah. that I am thinking about more and more. I think it's a great point. Maybe Mount Royal needs a discord server. That's, that's what I'm going to pitch. Uh, I, uh, one thing that I do have a question because of what you asked, you know, when I was, and I'm not going to date myself, uh, when I, this was happening, but when I was, uh, taking courses in university, I mean, the big push was amazingly still getting people to vary their diction. So take a thesaurus, start to look for the more, not the most impressive word, but the most appropriate, um, as a learning strategist, do you find students look up a lot of things digitally? Like if they come in with a Mac, are they are they Googling the thesaurus? Are they going to thesaurus.com? Are they using the Mac dictionary? Do they do they pull that up when you're working with them a lot? Because they never work with a physical paper dictionary. I was the crazy guy who carried a thesaurus with him in university. Yeah, that's not happening anymore, is it? I mean, I don't know how atypical <laughs> that would have been at that time either. I think kind of atypical. Um, but anyways, they, yeah, absolutely. So students, um, you know, many students have discovered that by right-clicking on a word, then you can get a, suggest, a list of suggested synonyms in different programs. And so they're taking advantage of that. Um, it is interesting to me, though, how frequently uh, when I'm working with a student, you know, we'll be looking at... Sometimes it's assignment instructions, like a key phrase in assignment instructions, or maybe they're trying to use something from a source in a research-based assignment. And, you know, you have this moment where you say, well, but like, what does that word actually mean? Say, well, I don't know. And then there's kind of a pause and you think, oh, this is where you say, let's look it up. And so um, that happens a lot. And that does kind of puzzle me that you... I don't know. I would have thought that students would very quickly um, open a new tab and just Google that word. And they don't need to go to a special dictionary necessarily. Like all I think they often need is just quickly Google that word and look at the definition. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I experienced that enough that it makes me think that um, yeah, some students are certainly doing that, but lots are not necessarily doing that exploration of um, understanding the language deeply. I don't know. Why would that be, do you think? Uh, I don't know. I, I can hypothesize. Um, Chris and I have talked about that offline. I've talked about with my colleagues about that. Sometimes I wonder if that's a holdover from how grade school and K to 12 works. People are, perhaps it's less technological and more behavioral. If people are used to being given the answer when it's wrong, uh, it could be, it could also be the types of writing assignments. It could be in, sometimes it's institutional culture. When I attended UBC, my favorite prof, who was, a, who was a mentor to me, was just brutal because you couldn't pick your own essay topics. He would get he would write elaborate essay topics where you couldn't even begin to answer them without a deep analysis of what the hell the question was in the first place. Like, tell me if American, uh, you know, political uh, parties are in a process of alignment or dealignment. Well, you couldn't even begin to answer that question if you didn't know it alignment or dealignment meant from a political science perspective. So it, it prompted the necessity to understand the fundamentals of the question before you could go answer it, where I wonder sometimes if when we say, and this is a bit of an aside, so I apologize if uh, 
there's a professor who's an expert who knows that I'm totally wrong about this. But if we give someone an assignment that says, you know, five, find X many sources, you know, and make a case for X, it's kind of like plugging things together. The writing becomes, or the, the analysis becomes more paint by number than, um, craft, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yes. And I, you know, there are different colleagues, um, that I've been speaking to recently have different terms for this. So um, Karen Mannerin and one of our English colleagues calls this faux research, right? Where you pre-establish the thing that you're going to try to prove and then you just cherry pick the, you know, the evidence that's going to work. I, I liked that. But then the other day, oh gosh, I can't even remember who it was. Was it Brooke Cecilia, I think maybe from um, communications who said, uh, who calls this uh, source vomiting? <laughs> so, well, I think actually he was referring to a slightly different thing. I think it was more that, you know, students are, are, are spitting out uh, something that they've read, uh, you know, transforming it minimally maybe, um, but without really doing that deep exploration. What does this actually mean? Right? Yeah. And of course, patch writing is, is a term that we use for that too in writing. So we've been spending quite a lot of time on our team thinking about ways uh, to integrate this key message into the work that we do with students about what what does it mean to like really if we were going to talk about I don't can I be bold and call it true research is you have a question a genuine question and then explore with an open mind and see what's out there and this idea seems to be for some students quite radical and so I've been asking myself a lot where does this idea come from and so I, I want to become more informed about maybe some of the tendencies that um, exist in the K-12 system where could it be that you know the 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 initial kind of baby steps towards research-based assignments kind of do need to take that approach. I mean, I don't know, but certainly it worries me that we have many of the students that we work with still have this idea of um, research-based writing being predetermined thesis, find bits and pieces of evidence that match what you want to say and plug them in. So yeah, that plug and play we see a lot. So we're, we're working hard to, um, to, yeah talk about that wherever we can with students and with faculty too so i mean that's interesting it's almost kind of even when you're talking about uh, these tools um uh, it kind of reminds me of in math how we ha now have like a dependency on calculators and um you know I, even i look at like let's say gmail going and prompting and auto-populating words for you uh, based on maybe your writing style or who knows, maybe just some algorithms and, and that kind of thing. I mean, I, I think one thing, Sylvia, in terms of the, the future, I've been thinking about this for the last few years, uh, but I, I think voice is going to become a big thing as well. Um, I mean, imagine the next generation, they might not even know how to type. And in fact, you can actually talk a lot faster than you can type. So um, I think that might be the, the next kind of evolution is, uh, you know, even forget about going and putting in uh, an approximation of well, how it, the word is spelled. They're just going to go and word vomit, whatever, and uh, into their, uh, you know, some AI uh, voice dictation and it'll spit out, um, uh, you know, some type of essay or what have you. And then they can finesse it from there. I mean, what do you That's think it. of that? I love 
that idea because I think that at the heart of it, what that might allow is for students to focus more on the ideas, right? And not get caught up on the mechanics of, you know, the right spelling or, you know, is this grammar correct or where do I put my comma? Um, you know, we can deal with that later, later in the writing process or in the, in the presentation creation process, what as the case may be. Uh, so the, the more we can emphasize to students the importance of staying at the idea stage and staying at that sort of thinking stage. Um, I mean, sometimes, of course, you have to write in order to do the thinking, right? Like sometimes we access um, the ideas through the act of writing, right? But I think you can do it through speaking too. Um, many of us, myself included, you know, come up with ideas as we talk, you know, <laughs> and spit a lot of meaninglessness out. And then, you know, there's a sort of few kernels here and there that you finally discover. And so, um, so I, I think that that doesn't scare me at all, actually. You know, and uh, maybe this is a nice little segue into um, uh, for the future. I think there's, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about micro credentials, badges. It's been kind of a high, hot topic for um, higher education. And, um, you know, are there and there might even be kind of potentially alternative uh you know, in addition to the, the four-year degrees. But do you think that there are certain skills or subjects that are well-suited for micro-credentials? I was trying to think about flipping that. And so I challenged myself to think like, okay, well, what sorts of skills or subject areas would not be well-suited to micro-credentials? But I didn't really come up with anything because I think that, you know, typically micro-credentials are sort of for competency-based things, right? So things where you can like demonstrate an ability to do something. But where where is that completely not a good fit? Like, I don't know why my brain went to philosophy. Or like, can you have micro-credentials in something like philosophy? Why not? I mean, there are uh, individual questions um, in philosophy that, you know, and individual competencies, I'm sure I'm not an expert in that area, but I couldn't really think of a subject area where a micro-credential would be a really terrible fit. But um, yeah, of course, I don't know. The big question in my mind is, if you have a completely decentralized system of micro-credentials that are being awarded all over the place, then like, how, how do you maintain the quality? Like, who decides what the micro-credential is worth? So I think at some, in some way, and I, I think there probably are places other than Canada where the micro-credential kind of system is a little bit more organized. And so maybe that's just where we need to get in Canada. I feel like we I don't know if I'm right about this, but we, it feels like we're a little bit behind. Um, and so I think there's great potential there. Like if you think about it, in a way, isn't a university degree kind of a stackable, modularized set of micro-credentials anyway? I mean, yes and no, because an individual course is maybe not of much value to, let's say, the employer. And I think much of this micro-credentialing system is, is bringing in that employer perspective, right? What's going to be valued in the professional area um, and how can um, maybe even people who already have some sort of degree, let's say, um, upskill. And so I don't know if it works best when you do have something that's like a base, uh, something like, you know, an entry ticket, like an undergraduate degree, and then you micro-credential on top of it, or whether we'll see things like undergraduate degrees be fragmented and modularized um, and become more like micro-credentials that, you know, pieces of which are valuable on their own. 
I don't know. I, I feel like the idea of modularization and being able to stack things in different ways and have smaller pieces be valuable in different settings is kind of appealing, but it's also messy. I don't know. What do you think? I'd love yeah, to know what I you mean, think about that. Yeah, that's interesting that you even, uh, I mean, you're basically kind of proposing kind of restructuring even how the degrees are, uh, you know, set up. And uh, I, I look at like the UFC, for example, I mean, they have now introduced some embedded certificates where, you know, you're if you wanted to minor in something, you could go and take those courses and then uh, you would take a, a capstone kind of course to go and get a uh, embedded certificate for entrepreneurial thinking or leadership. And, um, you know, I, I think maybe some of, uh, I mean, even I was in a meeting just yesterday. Uh, so I, at the Faculty of Continuing Education at the University of Calgary, they've had for the longest time micro credentials. And uh, it's, uh, I think maybe it, it wasn't called maybe micro credentials, but I mean, with their certificates and things like that. And they've kind of uh, just how you're talking about with those stackable where you might be able to take like three courses, but now those three courses can go and help you uh, and be put towards another certificate that might take you in a different direction. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I've been thinking about this for the last little while as well. And um, I, I think especially if you look at it, uh, you know, academia, universities, they're under intense pressure right now. And um, uh, really the what employers are looking for are some of those soft skills. And I, I think if there's a way that we can, uh, you know, whether it's a, a micro credential, but let's say in communication or critical thinking or creativity, uh, where maybe you can go and take X number of courses and then do something to get that credential and prove that you have that competency, that would probably be uh, helpful for both the, the student as well as uh, the, the employer. I mean, what do you think, Eric? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I guess the way I think about micro credentials is, is kind of a 21st century technological approach to what education and universities used to be. So you used to see a lot more. Uh, well, I don't have the data in front of me. But my understanding, especially if you look at American data, which is good because their universities have been around for a really long time, used to see a lot more Bachelor of Arts, you know, general sciences, that in itself is a stackable multiple micro credentials. I mean, I, I have, as you know, I have a degree in international relations. People ask me all the time, what is that? It invites a great, it's a great conversation starter. But the reason I took it is because I don't have the patience or I didn't want to invest the opportunity cost into just one thing. Right. So I think, I think the way people learn, so I like to program, I'm not going to enroll in a computer programming degree. That's a four-year program. I bought a $30 course on Udemy, which is fantastic. That's teaching me uh, React JavaScript, which is what I've always wanted to learn. So the opportunity cost at $30 is low. Um, and then when you're trying to learn something to solve problem X, that's very different than a university experience, which as you and I have talked, embeds a lot of other skills of which we're going to talk to in this. We have a question about this in our conversation. University is not just about learning. It's also about accountability. Did you show up to the class on time like you would show up to a job? That's one of the original intentions. Did you complete your boss's task, which is essentially what the instructor is asking you to do? There's things embedded in a university experience that are supposed to help people, for lack of a better word, grow up. But when you're talking about micro credentials, it's almost like continuing education. 
One example of a institu- uh, as a program that's done a good job of this, there's a Masters of Education Technology at UBC, the MET program, which as far as I, it's totally online. And as far as I'm concerned, it's supposed to be excellent. But they have a graduate certificate that stacks into the master's. So if I wanted to take that, I could take the graduate certificate and I could complete it. And if I really liked it, I could just take a few more courses and I could ladder myself into the master's because now I, I haven't had to commit. Where I think I think the the problem that universities are facing is that, you know, people go to university to get a job and to grow as a person and to meet people and get social skills. So if you have academic inflation to the degree where you're increasingly having to sign up for programs that kind of lock you in for so many years, that comes with a personal and also societal opportunity cost. People have kids later. They don't buy a house till they're 40 and that slows down the economy. So I think the, I think universities are facing the pressure and they're thinking of micro credentials because it's a lot to ask for someone to put down a a four-year plan, especially in economies like this where people are learning new skills. Um, You know, I look at my wife who until recently worked as a consultant. I mean, just the breadth of things that she was trying to solve in moving from project to project. Yeah. I mean, take an online course that takes you a week, solve the problem and move on. The problem is, is that those have never been linked together to where you could say, I have earned a diploma or certificate or second degree. Right. Yeah. And I guess that's the piece that is, is maybe the central problem that I think micro-credentialing has is that, you know, Eric, when you talked about the programming course that you took for $30 on Udemy or whatever, that, that is because, you know, you're interested in that um, and you're learning what you need to learn and you don't necessarily have to prove that to somebody in order for them to give you a job. But if that's, if, if you're in a situation where, no, you need something that's like recognized so that the employer will have the confidence that you are indeed able to do the thing with this, whatever badge you get um, says you can do, like, how do we, how does that piece fit in? Like, how do we make sure that, um, you know, we have organizations, institutions that are, um, that are doing the credentialing in such a way that the employers have the confidence, right? And that's where universities, you know, and post-secondary institutions have such an important opportunity here, right? Is because they already have the creds um, to varying degrees, okay, but they, but, you know, if a university offers a micro-credential as opposed to no-name organization over here, then, you know, you can probably, uh, move more confident or the employers can have more confidence. So, yeah. you know, how, what will that look like? Well, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, a computer science stuff is probably not a great example from my end because that's actually uh, an area where people don't really care if you have a degree, you can either code or you can't, and it's high demand. So I actually know a lot of people with arts and science degrees who, uh, taught themselves how to program and they make double what I make. So then in order for you to get hired as a coder, then you just show something that you've made. So it's the- uh, something that you something that you've made, but the interviews are also structured where they give you a programming test and they ask you, how would you solve this problem? So it doesn't matter if you have a degree or not, because you either can or you can't. So I think that's been the case for a long time for things where um, the skill is a bit more vocational. But if it's critical thinking, communications, and I had a company, I'd totally be giving people programming-esque tests. I'd be like, okay, here's a difficult client situation. What would you do about it? And honestly, if someone had a degree, 
And or I said, oh, you know, here's a here's a sample. We know we're Chris and I have a multi, you know, a podcast empire now. We want to hire uh, an editor or a, a second editor. And uh, okay, here's a sample interview. How are you going to stitch it together? Whether you graduated from an audio engineering program or not, it's the output that I'm hiring for, right? So I think that's uh, that's going to be interesting, and I, I think it's kind of exciting. Totally exciting. But how does that person get in the door? is the, the question, right? Like, I mean, in order for you to give them that competency-based task, like they have to look a certain way on the paper. Well, well I mean, maybe yeah. that whole process will evolve to be, you know, something that we don't recognize from the current, like, here's my resume and cover letter process. Um, but something has to get them, um, has to catch the employer's attention in order for them to invest the time in giving you that yeah. task, right? So I think a micro-credential, if that can get you in the door to an interview and you can commit to the degree once you have the full-time job, I think that's where it's interesting because it's like um, somebody may want to start, get the micro-credential in a year, start working, get some experience. Maybe they want to get married. They're going to have to start having their family. Okay, I'll start doing the degree part-time now that I have a position. And I, I, I sometimes wonder if that's the way because then people will start to piece together and then they'll, they'll eventually leave. And then maybe the degree gets them the promotion, but it was the micro-credential that got them in the door or something like that. Just kind of like the MBA has often got someone the promotion, but a business degree is what got them in the door. I just wonder if we're going to ratchet down to first gear rather than start at second, third gear. Yeah. Well, it's funny on the computer science front. Uh, I, I was just chat, chatting with a student just uh, last week and uh, the student is going and doing comp sci uh, and has not built anything to date. And, uh, you know, the, the student's in his uh, third or fourth year now. Uh, I know um, uh, another person who actually graduated in software engineering did not, in the four years, did not even build anything. So again, it's, uh, I sometimes wonder if, and who knows, that might have changed. I mean, this was years ago, but, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I've noticed here at Mount Royal, for example, where some of the instructors will just get them to build something and then showcase it. And, uh, you know, they have to learn whatever type of tool that there might be out there and actually demonstrate that they can go and, you know, solve some type of problem. I don't want to insert myself too much, Chris, but I think that's a, that's a great point. I'm at Royal, actually, by the way, for people looking, we do have a great science and technology team. And I know a lot of the instructors there and they love the hands-on active learning. So I think we do do a good job of that. A story about this. I had a friend of mine who said, you know, we want a static site. We want a site that becomes kind of a public note-taking blog. We're looking at different options. I said, oh, well, what you and he came to me for advice. He was looking to hire somebody, which I asked for. And I said, well, you don't need to build anything. What you do is you you go to GitHub. GitHub actually has web hosting called GitHub Pages. They have a bunch of templates. You spin them up. Um, they're really easy to do. You can connect it to a domain if you know how to add a domain and add the proper file types and stuff. He just said, can you spin this up for me? We'll give you 500 bucks. And I was like, sure, I can do it. Um, no big deal. It took me an afternoon. Right. So it's it's interesting that it's like they didn't really care as long as it was built. And it was just kind of a public facing static site. It was kind of a, a loose blog. These are technical people, so it was OK for them. But um, just an example of, you know, getting it done uh, sometimes is is all that matters. Right. And I think if we teach students to articulate that they're willing to go out and try to build something that may really help them in the future, which is kind of a different conversation. 
maybe I blew that contract, never get hired again. It's, it's now it's not public. That was that was a few years ago, but I just kind of a random thing where, yeah, this is how you do it. And they're just like, well, clearly you can do this. Why would we post this and hire someone else, right? And it's kind of a networking question. Um, our, one of the questions that we had today was about um, kind of circling back to some of the productivity stuff that that we talked about. So on this podcast, uh, Chris and I have spent a, a great deal of time, wasn't originally our intent, but it's kind of evolved this way, talking about productivity strategies, both software, uh, hardware, and also analog tools. So an example might be um, something simple as what are the best, you know, uh, what's the best way to organize deep work through time blocking? And then what is the best calendar tool to do that, which which is a direct relationship to education technology. Um, So my question is, is it do you think skills like um, productivity, design, um, personal productivity strategies, I guess that's what I'm getting at. Do you think those skills are, are things that sh- should be learned on the fly, which I think is typically the case? Or do you think that there's an opportunity for institutions like universities to actually build that as an outcome into curriculum? 100% build it into curriculum. But I wonder if I might be thinking about the term productivity um, in a slightly different way. I mean, if we just stick with sort of the, um, the idea of deep work and time blocking and sort of time management types of things, um, I do think that absolutely because students are busy people and because we want them to succeed in their learning and there are only 24 hours in a day, then I, I think we actually owe it to students to um, provide support uh, in, that's, that's integrated into the curriculum to help them um, experiment with different ways of doing that and figure out what's going to work best for them. But, you know, I guess this idea of integrating productivity strategies in general is is basically the ultimate mission of our team of learning strategists, right? And, and that includes the, the math learning strategists, the writing learning, writing strategists, um, because, you know, what, what our, our ultimate, uh, what we're really trying to do is collaborate with faculty to... Um, to get those learning and math and writing strategies integrated into the curriculum. So, you know, here's here's an example. You might not think of integrating writing strategies as falling under the umbrella of productivity, but I kind of think that productivity is an integral aspect of all the work that we do. So when we, you know, talk with students or do a session in a class about, you know, the benefits of outlining and that planning stage of writing, at the heart of it, we are really talking about productivity because we see students all the time who, for a number of reasons, you know, there's a tendency to skip over the planning stage of writing uh, and just dive right into the writing of paragraphs. And what ends up happening then is that students will sometimes make a bit of a miss. And then it takes actually more time to sort out how to revise that, um, those paragraphs of writing than, than it would have taken if you had uh, lingered a little bit longer in the planning stage. And so these sorts of writing strategies like kind of are about productivity. So, you know, reading is the same that when we emphasize you know the notion that students need to clearly understand their purpose for reading a particular text 
really, what are we doing? We're trying to help them figure out how to read more efficiently. And so how do they hone in on the pieces of the text that will best help them accomplish their purpose? How do they understand how a text is composed, how it's organized in order to really zero in on what they need? So I don't know if, um, if you would classify those things as productivity strategies, but I, I think that's the way that we think about it. It's interesting. Um, I, I know Chris might have something to say about this, but you know, how many students f from a productivity standpoint make use of, let's say, Google Calendar or Google Tasks? I think increasingly more students well, are, are using um, digital calendars of different of different kinds, but because of course, our campus is a Google campus, then um, the Google Calendar, I think, is, is pretty commonly used. But students still, still do. Um, it seems to be kind of a revelation when you actually go through the process with a student of uh, helping them see how allocating time to uh, even something as basic as, you know, allocate a, a certain number of hours per week to this course and allocate, uh, you know, another certain number of hours per week to this other course. And then sort of the concept of assigning those time blocks to a specific task. And then the idea that, you know, by, by allocating that time, you're not actually hemming yourself in or like locking yourself inside a tiny box. Actually, what you're doing is creating the freedom to move things around. And so instead of having all of this um, stuff floating around in your mind, you've actually put it somewhere where you can manipulate it easily. And so, um, you know, again, if that could be spoken about in the context of, um, you know, a particular course by the, that expert disciplinary instructor, so much the better because they will have a much better idea of, you know, what to label some of these blocks, um, you know, in an example of mm -hmm. how to organize a week for that particular course, right? Whereas I'm sometimes inventing, well, I guess if you're doing a biology course, then you might call this block X or something. And so the instructor could probably do that more efficiently. Um, but sometimes instructors don't necessarily think about, well, I mean, w one of the uh, one of the types of statements that I come across quite frequently is something like, well, it's not, you know, it's not really my job to teach the writing. My job is to teach the content, right? But the writing is not separate from the content. If you've, if you've decided to assign some sort of writing, and let's just say research-based writing, well, then that is an integral part of your course. I mean, that is how the students are accessing and playing with and manipulating the ideas that are so, um, you know, close to your heart as a, as a disciplinary expert. And so there's this one quotation by Tricia Service. Um, in 2015, she said, uh, faculty often assign rather than teach research-based writing. And I think that's really interesting that, you know, I, I, this idea that we can we can give students an assignment where they have to use research, but like, who is teaching them how to use this research, how to find it, how to read it, how to extract interesting things and explore them deeply and then integrate all of that together. Right. I mean, it's all part of the same thing. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The writing and grammar and teaching, you know, um, what a noun is, is one thing. But then, okay, how do we pick apart a source? Here's what I'm expecting from you. That stuff is very different. You know, it makes me think too, Sylvia, I heard a quote a while back, I don't remember who said it, but that there was a 
kind of a casual contempt between <laughs> academics and the private sector and the private sector's view of academics because they're both integral in terms of where the education comes from and then people work go into the workforce but the people who work in those industries sometimes can have a casual contempt for each other and then of course the librarians the learning strategists are kind of trying to glue these two repelling magnets together so students leave prepared because of course as you know when people apply for a job uh, you know, the, the questions, uh, the qualifications aren't, you know, how many of, uh, you know, uh, this job will depend on your ability to, in detail, explain the pros and cons of the American political system. It'll be, are you organized? Are you a good person to work with? And that kind of stuff. So Chris and I have talked about in the past about how would you take a disciplinary degree? Let's take political science, because that's what I'm comfortable with. But then also build in some sort of reflection to whereby obviously students are obviously it's very self-evident that they're evaluated on their understanding of the content and the ability to write essays but then should there be an also a built-in thing where you know every semester they have to document what they what they learned and how that applies to uh the job force and and how to do that because i think that's difficult because people often leave school um They've learned these kind of ancillary organizational skills that are critical to being successful in a disciplinary degree that are also the same skills you'd use in the workforce, but they can't express them on paper when they go to apply. That certainly was my experience. And so what is the mechanism by which people are forced to consider that before they've, they've graduated? Yeah, I can think of two things. One is that... Um, when instructors are crafting assignment instructions, whether that's for a writing assignment or any other kind of assignment, um, sometimes the purpose is a little bit missing. It's, it's, um, it's not clearly stated for students. So that is one place where, and I mean, uh, so much to say on that, but that is one place where I think it's important for students to get at least initial access to like, why is my instructor asking me to do this thing? Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, it's actually not easy for instructors to articulate either. What, why exactly have you chosen this annotated bibliography, for example? Why that assignment? What is it that you want your students to get out of that assignment? Um, and so thinking carefully about, um, first, why are we assigning these things? And then how are we communicating that to students, I think, is, is kind of crucial. And then I, I think that our colleagues in, you know, career services departments um, spend a lot of time helping students to be able to uh, articulate the skills and competencies that they have developed over the course of their degree. And I don't even mean just like at the end when they're ready to graduate, but like all the way through, I think, I believe, I'm not an expert in that area by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm learning more and more about it. And I think that that's a really important job that they do is help students to see what, what are you able to do um, because of this assignment or this course, and how do you link that to, um, you know, a, a future potential job situation. And I, I think we could probably all be doing a little bit more. And another thing we could do would be to think about how can we really create authentic assignments for students, right? So instead of, you know, a research essay that, that only the instructor will ever read, uh, you know, and I don't mean to say that we shouldn't assign research papers, but, but sometimes there's a way to to add an angle to that, 
um, and to transform it into something that's just a little bit different, but allows students to develop the same sorts of skills and competencies, but, but helps them to make that link between the academic world and the non-academic world more easily. So I think there are all kinds of things that we could do, but I think we have a real responsibility to support students in developing that ability to understand what they have learned and how they can apply that outside of the, you know, the walls of, of the institution. I brought this up years and years ago at a, not at Mount Royal, somewhere else. And um, <laughs> the response from someone was that it's not my problem. I'm not a vocational counselor. And I was like, well, uh, interesting, interesting opinion. But, you know, why do people it, it seems to be like there's a bit of a rift about why people what universities are for right now is maybe an identity crisis. And this might uh, click in with what you commented on about micro credentials and what they may or may not be. What is it for? Um, what is it supposed to teach people? Uh, you know, there seems to be a hesitancy um, to admit that people go to university to get employment, uh, but yeah, but it's not just but it's not just that. So it, it seems to be that there that's uh, there seems to be a little bit more of a void in between two the two sides of that argument than I remember before. Yeah, there might be some different camps, but you know, we can see. Um, a proliferation of work integrated learning experiences, uh, experiential learning, and places where there are very, very uh, strong and exciting. Uh, like lots of exciting work is being done to help um, link what students are learning and what they're producing and what they're able to do to sort of meaningful work in the community of various kinds. So that that's really exciting to me. I recently finished watching, uh, this is, uh, 10 years ago, there was a lecture by uh, uh, Randy Posh, who was a great computer scientist interested in VR and virtual world building at Carnegie Mellon University. Very, very sad. He died when he was in his 40s from cancer, a brilliant university professor. And he used to teach a course on building virtual worlds. And uh, like you said, so academically valuable, so much academic theoretical knowledge learned, but such a valuable class that I think the Electronic Arts and another company guaranteed in writing that they would always hire students from that course into summer internships because they were so good at what they did from that course and i that's a i i recommend that i can put it in actually in the show notes for the episode i can send it to you it's a brilliant uh last lecture from a, a professor unfortunately who, who was dying but uh just the legacy he left in terms of what you said, integrated ed and education technology, integrated learning into the workforce, but also that strong theoretical component. Uh, interesting experience. Yeah, how that I'd be, be very keen to, to take a closer look at that. So I think this is a good time to start our rapid fire questions section. So Sylvia, the way this works is that we didn't send you these ahead of time. Uh, these are, if you've seen our other interviews, these are kind of lighthearted um yes or no answer or, or short answer kind of questions. Uh, they're not political in nature, uh, nothing. Uh, so we feel comfortable surprising people with them. Um, but they're all very straightforward, I promise. So this is just our kind of our, our fun way that we end all our, all our interviews. So are you uh, ready for the rapid fire question section? I'm ready. Hit me. Oh, okay. Uh, Mac or PC? Uh, PC, but kind of like a wannabe Mac user. A wannabe Mac user can ask why. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Mac users are cooler, aren't they? <laughs> I don't know. I guess. I've just it's never 
I've never invested. I don't know. Well, we have uh, now that the new Apple Silicon, maybe now is a good time. They have some <gasps> low-priced, super awesome computers that are not Intel anymore. So oh, it's I a good time to be a new user. I will contact you after for more information. Yes. <laughs> So uh, Google Meet, Skype, slash Microsoft Teams, or Zoom? Down with Zoom. I'm so sorry. I have to say that today only because, uh, so Google Meet is my choice only because okay. my particular device supports it better. Much better. Well, I would imagine on a Chromebook that Google Meet actually works really well because it's almost perfectly optimized for that. I think, like I use Firefox. I think some people think I'm crazy. I think Chris uses Firefox too because I'm a privacy guy, but Chrome works great. I feel mm -hmm. like the, the experience on uh Google Meet and Chrome is superior. Yeah, it, it works fine, very stable, never any trouble, and I've become quite confident with it. So yeah, Zoom frustrates me, I think, because of that incompatibility. Mm -hmm. Standing or sitting desk? Both. My standing desk consists of a cardboard box with a tablecloth draped over it in my home office. I very much miss my official standing desk at work, but any both. We had the Veridesk, right? Didn't you have a Veridesk? Uh, I don't know what the brand was, but I loved it. I loved the it. manual. Yeah, the manual you yeah. adjusted the now. Yeah, love it. I did love it too. Um, Microsoft Word or Google Docs? Google Docs. All the way. Really? Even the hanging indent? Oh, the hanging indent. Yeah, it's a few clicks, isn't it? That is a pain. They should fix that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's okay. I'm over that. Favorite citation standard? Mm. Well, I don't have a lot of experience with Vancouver, but I like the numerical ones. So the numerical honestly, ones? Huh? Yeah, numerical. I like them. They're clean. Favorite workshop that you offer? Oh, I love the workshop called, um, well, right now it's called Virtual Presentations. Um, I really, really love to work on presentation skills with students. There's so much to, um, to talk about. And I think that there is a lot of important work to be done there because sometimes people still do think about a presentation as a one-way thing. And uh, it can be transformational when we really talk about what engagement of an audience means in two-way. Pen or pencil? Fine tipped felt pen, like as finely tipped as possible. A felt, interesting. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so I'm not going to convert you to the Uniball jet stream anytime soon. Is what you're well, saying? I don't know. Have I tried it? I mean, I need to try it. It's the best pen ever. I'll mail one to you. <laughs> I'm going to hold uh, you to that. If you give me the address, I'll do it. Um, okay. I have lots. Coffee or tea? Coffee, but. Uh, Dark roast, you know, a beautiful espresso um, with a little bit of milk. There you go. Yes, short espresso. I agree. Short caption. My wife bought a frother, um, a Ness, what is it? Not Nescafe. That's always what I want to say, but that's absolutely not the brand. Nespresso. Nespresso. That's the one. One of the from frothers that I've been adding to my milk. And that's like, just like, I have to look forward to every morning. So exactly. I can appreciate that. Um, last piece of advice you'd give to your 18 to 20 year old younger self or any student at that age entering higher ed? Oh, I thought you were going to ask me about like, what would I tell myself? And the first thing was don't get in that car. <laughs> um, sorry, can you repeat the question? 18 to 20 year old students? Last piece of advice to your 18 to 20 year old younger self or student entering higher ed? Oh, two words. 
be curious. Yeah, I think that's a great piece of advice. Sylvia, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, Chris and I really appreciate you coming to take the time to speak to us today on this podcast. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It was really, really fun. Thanks so much. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTechExamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time. And I'm Chris Hall, the audio producer for EdTechExamined. You can get in touch with me and contact me through all of my social media at my website, which is chrishong.ca. That's C-H-R-I-S-H-O-A-N-G dot C-A.